Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Saturday, December 17th, and Sunday, December 18th, 2022. I'll start with a couple of um, uh, anniversaries. Uh, December 16th, 7 55, Chinese General An Lushan declared himself emperor. Uh, he was attempting to usurp power from the ruling Tang dynasty. Uh, the An Lushan rebellion lasted over seven years, uh, well after the death of its namesake in 757. Uh, it failed, but it also badly weakened the Tang dynasty, which strengthened the neighboring Uyghur Khanate or Uyghur Haganate, excuse me, and the Tibetan Empire, uh, and forced the Tang to largely retreat from Central Asia, which left that region open, uh, or more open, I should say, to the uh, Islamic Caliphate, which was uh, still fairly new at that point, uh, less than 100, well, okay, 100 years old or so. Uh, still pretty new by historical standards, I guess. Uh, in On December 16th, uh, 1944, uh, a major and sudden German offensive in the Ardennes Forest began the Battle of the Bulge, which is one of the most important engagements on the Western Front in World War II. The battle ended on January 25th, 1945, with an Allied victory. Uh, the German attack delayed the Allied advance into Germany by several weeks, but the cost was the near obliteration of what Ever remained of the German military's capability to wage an offensive war. On December 16, 1971, the Indo-Pakistani War and the Bangladesh Liberation War, which were two parts of the same conflict, both came to an end. Bangladesh had rebelled uh, against Pakistan, or at the time, I guess it was known as East Pakistan. It had rebelled uh, against West Pakistan, uh, what is today just Pakistan, uh, several months earlier. The Indian government eventually got involved in part because of an influx of refugees from East Pakistan slash Bangladesh. Uh, and once the Indian army, once the Indian military got involved, it, the war was over very quickly. Uh, they outclassed the Pakistanis in pretty much every way. Um, and so these are, uh, again, kind of considered separate conflicts, but part of the same uh, basic uh, episode here. And they, they both ended on the same day, of course. On December 17th, 1398, this is the anniversary of the Battle of Delhi, uh, one of the battles of Delhi, I suppose. Uh, this is the one uh, in which Timur Tamerlane, the Turco-Mongolian uh, warlord who was active in the late 14th, early 15th centuries, uh, invaded India, sacked Delhi, made off with a tremendous amount of wealth and uh, happened to kill uh, a whole lot of people. Uh, in the process, uh, he was known for that sort of thing. Uh, but this, the the sack of Delhi uh, and the death toll that, that ensued is um, high, even by Timur standards. It's one of the most notorious uh, events of his career um, as a conqueror. Uh, so, uh, you know, not a not a highlight, I guess, from a humanitarian perspective. Um, in On December 17th, 2010, a Tunisian street vendor in Sidi Bouzid, uh, whose name was Mohamed Bouazizi, set himself on fire to protest mistreatment by corrupt municipal authorities. Public outrage of, over Bouazizi's death sparked the Tunisian Revolution, which in turn sparked the Arab Spring, and your views on that will depend probably on whether or not you think uh, that the Arab Spring was successful. It, uh, I would say mostly uh, was not, but I'm uh, not. Uh, my my word is by no means final on that subject. Uh, on December eighteenth, fourteen ninety nine, this is the beginning of the Alpujarras Rebellion uh, in. 
Spain, I suppose, although it wasn't necessarily Spain at this point, it was sort of proto-Spain. This was a rebellion by uh, the Muslims of Granada, uh, who had been defeated, subjugated. The the ruling house, the Marina dynasty, uh, had been driven off uh, in 1492, of course. This was the end of the Reconquista, or so-called Reconquista, uh, under the terms of the Treaty of Granada that, that set up that defeat. Uh, the Spanish sovereigns, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, uh, or proto-Spanish sovereigns, whatever you want to call them, uh, agreed to allow the Muslims of Granada to more or less rule themselves according to their own law, to practice their own faith. Uh, that lasted really not even seven years uh, before Catholic advisors to both monarchs began uh, pushing for forced conversions, things like that. Uh, this revolt was the result, and its defeat by the proto-Spanish authorities uh, provided an excuse to just ratchet up uh, the um, kind of mistreatment uh, of the Muslim population even further. Uh, you will probably be aware that this all eventually ends with the expulsion uh, not just of Muslims, that's one phase of it, but eventually the expulsion even of former Muslims or Moriscos uh, from, from Spain uh, many years later. Uh, on December 18th, 2005, the four-year Chadian civil war began when uh, the rebel group Rally for Democracy and Freedom attacked the town of Adre near the Sudanese border. Uh, the rebels were backed by Sudan and its Janjaweed militia. Uh, they were eventually defeated by the Chadian government uh, under President Idris Deby. Uh, an agreement between Deby and then-Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir uh, ended the conflict in January 2010. So that's a lot of anniversaries, actually. It's a pretty rich... Uh, time. And of course, there's more. I just pick out a few that I like. Uh, on to the news. In the Middle East, uh, in Iraq, Islamic State fighters killed nine Iraqi police officers in an ambush in Iraq's Kirkuk province on Sunday. The militants reportedly detonated a roadside bomb in the vicinity of a police patrol and then followed that with a direct assault. One of the attackers was reportedly killed as well. Uh, in uh, Israel-Palestine, an Israeli settler killed two Palestinians, uh, brothers, with his car at a checkpoint south of the West Bank city of Nablus on Saturday. The language that's being I've seen used uh, in reporting this story is, I think, illustrative because the settler is described as running over the victims, probably intentionally, but still running them over, uh, whereas if this were a Palestinian driver and two settler victims, it would almost certainly be characterized as a car-ramming terrorist attack. Uh, the killer drove off, uh, as far as I know, uh, he has not been arrested, nor does there seem to be much impetus on the part of Israeli authorities to find him, which is, uh, of course, another distinction, because if this had been a Palestinian driver, the Israeli military would currently be engaged in a massive manhunt to find this person and bring them to justice. Uh, this is, as I've written several times here, the deadliest year on record for Palestinians in the West Bank. Um Israeli state violence gets more attention, but settler violence, uh, which often gets tacit state support in terms of how or whether it's punished, uh, has also been a major contributor to that uh, grisly death toll. Uh, in Egypt, the International Monetary Fund's executive board has reportedly approved a new $3 billion, 46-month bailout package uh, after the Egyptian Central Bank instituted a sufficient degree of austerity for the IMS taste. Uh, Egypt's economy appears to be in a state of implosion, in large part because of what the war in Ukraine has done to global food prices, Egypt being one of the world's largest wheat producers, or wheat importers, excuse me. Uh, the deal will inject some hard currency into the central bank, which Egyptian officials are hoping 
grouping will stimulate potentially billions of dollars in new foreign investment. Uh, on to Asia. In Azerbaijan, the governments of Azerbaijan, Georgia, Hungary, and Romania have concluded an agreement to lay a power cable under the Black Sea to bring Azerbaijani electricity to Hungary via the two other countries. Uh, Baku is looking to sell power generated by offshore wind farms to its to European clients. Uh, this would help Romania and Hungary, for starters, offset their dependence on Russian energy supplies and could be expanded to other parts of Europe. Hungarian officials are, are also reportedly engaged in talks with the Omani and Qatari governments about potential oil and natural gas deals. From Azerbaijan's perspective, deals like this not only make economic sense, politically they offer some leverage against any European impulse to support Armenia in the ongoing South Caucasus conflict. Uh, in Pakistan, in a display of both their capabilities and their capacity for irony, a group of te terrorists uh, seized a counterterrorism facility in northern Pakistan's Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province uh, on Sunday. Uh, they have taken hostages. Uh, as far as I know, this is an ongoing situation. I haven't seen any indication that it has been resolved, uh, so details are naturally somewhat sparse. There's no confirmation in terms of responsibility, although given the location, the Pakistani Taliban or T. TP seems the most likely culprit. Uh, militants had also attacked a police station in another part of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa in a separate incident on Sunday, killing at least four police officers and wounding four more before withdrawing. Again, there's been no claim of responsibility here, but the attackers there were also probably from the TTP. Uh, Meanwhile, former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan announced on Saturday, Saturday that his Pakistan Tehrike and Soft Party will force the dissolution of state legislatures in two provinces, Khyber Pakhtunkhwa and Punjab. Uh, PTI holds majorities in both of those bodies, and Khan is attempting to leverage those majorities to force the Pakistani government to call an early general election. Normally, state legislatures and everything else are pretty much elected at the same time uh, in Pakistan, which means their next scheduled election will come in November 2023. By moving up elections in those two provinces, they'll have to be held within the next three months if they do go ahead with dissolving the legislatures, um, including in what is by far the largest province in Pakistan, Punjab. Uh, Khan wants election authorities to basically just throw in the towel uh, and decide to hold the whole, you know, have the whole election uh, ahead of schedule. Uh, in Nepal, Nepalese President Bidya Devi Bandari has given the country's political parties until December 25th to work out a new governing coalition after last month's election, although they emerged from that vote just two seats shy of a majority. Prime Minister uh, Sher Bahadur Duba's Nepali Congress Party and its coalition partners have not been able to close the deal with a smaller party to put themselves back in the majority. Uh, at the same time, the opposition Communist Party of Nepal, unified Marxist-Leninist, uh, hasn't had any better results on its end, so things are uh, seemingly at a stalemate. Uh, it's unclear what Bandari is planning to do if there's no working majority by that deadline, but a new snap election uh, could be possible. In Myanmar, at least 11 people were injured on Sunday when a river ferry apparently exploded in Yangon. Uh, as far as I know, there's been no determination as to the cause. That said, I am not an expert on such matters, but I assume ferries don't randomly blow up all that often. So uh, given conditions in Myanmar, it seems reasonable to at least speculate that a man-made explosive device was involved. Uh, though again, as far as I know, they have not come to any determination. 
In North Korea, the North Korean military fired two ballistic missiles into the seas off of the Korean peninsula's eastern coast on Sunday. According to the South Korean military, these were medium-range missiles that landed outside of Japanese economic waters. On Monday morning, North Korean media reported that Pyongyang had conducted a final phase, that's a quote, test for putting a spy satellite into orbit. So this involved a rocket launch and the uh, a dummy satellite that was mocked up to uh, conduct some surveillance. This seems to have been a different test, to be clear, uh, from the one uh, involving the ballistic missiles. Uh, in Japan, Japanese Prime Minister Kishida Fumio rolled out a plan on Friday to inject an extra $320 billion or so uh, into Japan's military, or I, I'm sorry, I mean self-defense forces uh, over the next five years, uh, putting the country right behind the U.S. and China uh, in military spending. Uh, perceived threats from China, and to a lesser extent North Korea, are the rationale behind the spending boost, but Kishida's initiative may not get a great reception from the Japanese public, 65% of whom, according to a new Kyoto poll, are opposed to the plan's corresponding tax increases, and 87% of whom don't think Kishida did a very good job of explaining why tax hikes would be necessary. Uh, So not necessarily a great start for that plan. Uh, In Oceania and Fiji, we've been uh, talking about the voting in the Fiji uh, parliamentary election. Well, the counting is done. There's an argument to be made that the party that actually won is the party that came in um, fourth uh, fourth place. No, really, I'll, 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 I'll try to make this case. Uh, Prime Minister Frank, Frank uh, Beni Marama's uh, Fiji First Party has finished with, a, with control of 26 seats, which is too shy of a majority in the 55-seat parliament. Uh, opposition leader Sidiveni Rabuka's People's Alliance has finished with 21 seats. Its coalition partner, the National Federation Party, has finished with five, giving them a collective total of 26 seats, too shy of a majority. The fourth-place Social Democratic Liberal Party emerged with control of three seats. So it just so happens that its support will determine the composition of Fiji's next government. Uh, the party's general secretary, uh, Lenaitasi Duru, I'm sorry if I'm mangling that, uh, said over the weekend that talks are ongoing with both factions, uh, and I would assume that uh, the Social Democratic Liberal Party will try to extract significant concessions on policy in return for its votes, given that they are really in a position to be the literal kingmaker in this case. Uh, in Africa, in Tunisia, Tunisian President Kais Saeed had set up what was almost a no-lose situation for himself heading into Saturday's parliamentary election. His decision to strip political parties of most of their power caused most opposition parties to boycott the vote, meaning that whatever parliament emerged was likely to be heavily skewed in Saeed's favor. And even if it wasn't, Saeed's constitutional changes had stripped parliament of much of its power anyway. Uh, why, just about the only way this election could have backfired on Saeed as if turnout were just absurdly, embarrassingly low. And really, what were the chances of that happening? I'm sorry, what? what? Turnout was 8.8%. Uh, well, okay, never mind then. Uh, this is real. Turnout was less than 9% uh, in this election, and I really don't know what happens now. Saeed is obviously under no obligation to, for example, obey the opposition's suggestion that he resign because of this. Uh, there's not much they can do to force him to resign, but this turnout is humiliating to agree to, uh, to a degree that undercuts Saeed's legitimacy. It suggests that the substantial 
little public support he seemed to have when he seized power in July of 2021 has evaporated. Uh, But again, there's no structural mechanism that would mandate that he do anything other than to keep on keeping on. So we'll see what, what happens here. Uh, In Europe, in Germany, uh, speaking of alternatives to Russian energy, uh, as we mentioned above in the case of this Azerbaijani uh, electrical cable, Black Sea electrical cable, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz officially opened that country's first liquefied natural gas terminal on Saturday at the port city of Wilhelmshaven. Wilhelmshaven, I don't know. Uh, My German's worse than my French. Uh, Liquefied natural gas is one of the primary options European countries are adopting as they wean themselves off of, or are themselves weaned off of by Russia, uh, Russian natural gas supplies, much to the delight of suppliers in places like Qatar and the United States. Uh, But the continent is not exactly overcrowded with LNG infrastructure because it has been getting most of its natural gas via a pipeline uh, from Russia for so long. And so countries like Germany are trying to ramp up uh, their uh, LNG capacity uh, as quickly as possible. Uh, In Ireland, and I want to forewarn you that I'm going to mangle a lot of words here because it's Ireland and it's just weird. I'm sorry. Uh, But former Irish uh, Tisha Leo Varadkar resumed that post on Saturday under the terms of the coalition agreement, Tisha being prime minister, uh, under the terms of the coalition agreement uh, that his Fine Gael party made with the Fianna Foil party following Ireland's 2020 election. Now, former Tisha and Fianna Foil boss Mikhail Martin has slotted in uh, as Varadkar's deputy. He should also be named foreign minister as well. I try. I got a little Irish, but uh, not the language. I can't do it. I'm sorry. So I apologize again uh, to anybody listening to that uh, for what I just did. Uh, (laughs) uh, So on to the Americas uh, in Peru. Uh, I think it is Safe to say that uh, Peruvian President Dina Boluarte's term is off to a pretty shaky start, given the protests that have gripped the country since Pedro Castillo was removed from office earlier this month, uh, that have resulted in at least 20 protester deaths so far. Uh, Now she's already reshuffling her cabinet, which has only been in office for about a week after two of her ministers resigned on Friday over reports of police violence. Uh, Boluarte spent Saturday morning limply scolding the Peruvian Congress for rejecting her request to move the country's April 2026 election, uh, general election, up to December 2023 in an effort to calm the unrest. Uh, That vote... The, the vote to reject her plan may actually work to some degree to Boluarte's advantage. It allows her to recast herself as an enemy of the same deeply unpopular Congress that ousted Castillo uh, and as a champion of the poor, indigenous, and otherwise marginalized Peruvians who supported the former president and have hit the streets in anger over his impeachment and arrest. If she's lucky, those protesters will stop demanding her resignation uh, and focus their ire on Congress. She's been trying to convince them that she was working to protect Castillo during her time as vice president to not much apparent success as yet, uh, as the protesters continue to demand her resignation and accuse her of usurping power uh, from Castillo. Uh, and in the United States, finally, uh, over at his uh, newsletter, The Racket, uh, another Substack newsletter, Jonathan Katz uh, looks at the Atlantic columnist George Packer's recent 
uh, uh, recent uh, essay on the joys of liberal interventionism. Uh, I'll just read you a couple of paragraphs from Jonathan's piece. George Packer is the consummate liberal hawk. The former New Yorker staff writer now employed by The Atlantic supported the U.S. invasions and bombings of Haiti, Serbia, Libya, Afghanistan, and most unforgettably Iraq, always crucially on humanitarian grounds. Packer's signature move is the agonized hand ring. In 2013, he debated himself on whether the U.S. should escalate its bombing of Syria. Uh, this is almost always followed by a conclusion that, regrettably, the bomb should fly once again, and just as often they do. So it got my attention when Packer wrote an essay last month titled A New Theory of American Power. Its thesis and subhead, the United States can and must wield its power for good. God damn, that's good stuff. <laughs> no, sorry. Uh, the first thing to note is that the headline is misleading. Packer doesn't present any theory of American power at all. Moreover, what he does hand-wringingly propose isn't new. His bottom line is the same as it has been since his career began in the 1990s. Quote, a decent world isn't possible without liberalism, and liberalism can't thrive without U.S. engagement, end quote. By engagement, Packer means the expression of American power, and by power, of course, he mostly means bombs. What is new for Packer is the way he wants to see those bombs delivered, but his latest change of tactic is telling. Uh, I would urge you to, to go uh, read the rest of the piece. Jonathan does a, uh, a nice job, and uh, we'll have a little, uh, we'll have a piece, uh, hopefully uh, uh, tomorrow, actually, from uh, Mike Brennis, the, the Foreign Exchange's latest contributing writer, uh, that touches a bit on Packer's column and really looks at uh, where things stand for uh, those of us who would like a little restraint in U.S. foreign policy uh, after or during and after, I guess, as a result of the war in Ukraine. Uh, so please look out for that. I'll post that uh, sometime tomorrow. Uh, and um, on that note, I think that's it for us tonight. Uh, as always, thank you for uh, reading and or listening to the newsletter. And thanks to those of you who are subscribed to Foreign Exchanges, especially those of you who have made the jump to paid subscriber. We are running a little uh, holiday uh, discount. Uh, so if you're thinking about it, now is a great time to subscribe. And uh, it is only through the support of, of you, the subscriber, not only to get a lot of extra content, a lot of extra uh, stuff on world affairs and U.S. foreign policy, but you make it possible for this newsletter to exist. Uh, this is my day job, and so uh, I couldn't do it uh, without you guys. Uh, until next time... Take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.